All right. Well, welcome to those that are watching online tonight and then to you high schoolers. It is a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, this is the last week of the month, and typically what we do is a, a question and answers night on Thursday nights out here at the church where basically whatever questions people have, we have a panel available to answer, question, answer those questions from the Bible the best that we're able to do that. So Marcus has been going through um, our foundations class with you guys, and it, basically that covers kind of some fundamental things of Christianity, and uh, you guys submitted some questions a couple weeks ago, I believe it was. Those are the questions that got passed on to us. So what we're going to do tonight is I've got a panel of parents, because a couple things I wanted to accomplish with that is just for your guys' parents, just to kind of set that example of when you guys have questions. First and foremost, you guys can do exactly what we're going to do tonight, and that's just look in the Bible for the answers. This is the one book in the whole entire world where you can absolutely know that everything in here is true because it was written by God, and it's been preserved by God through the ages, so we don't have to wonder about the stuff in it. This is truth, and so for my question, that's what I did. I just I went in there. You know, I had some ideas from reading the Bible over, over the years of what the answers were, but I had to make sure on them. So I just went to the Bible and I used, uh, you know, some, some commentaries or basically there's lots of tools out there that help you like know where to look. If you're wondering, well, how do I know even where to look where you can look up things and it just helps you utilize it. And so I can also help you guys with those things. If, if you guys are interested in things that help you go through your Bible, but all that to say is what we're doing tonight is the same thing you guys can do. Anytime you have a question about something in life and it's something your parents can do. And all of these people have kids, their parents, to some degree. This is my wife, Sarah Suits. She is a parent of four children, four boys. And this is Nakisha Womble, and she has one son. And uh, Connor, he's a brand new dad. Uh, you guys know him and his wife and their baby. And, uh, and then Matt Bellingham, I forget how many kids he has. It's, it's a <laughs> we lost count, five. So um, but we all uh, took, there was like a total of five questions basically Marcus gave us from you guys. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the time to just answer those questions um, one by one. Each person's kind of been assigned one. And then if we have time at the end, if you guys have any follow-up questions, you guys got those note things out there, go ahead and write notes down as we're answering. And if you want a follow-up question or you need clarification on something, we'll do our best to answer it. And if we have time for additional questions, we can do that too. So, um, Without further ado, let me pray, and then we'll start answering these questions. Lord God, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it's, it's, it has stood the test of time, Lord, since its earliest creation when you inspired people to write it. Um, it's always proven itself to be true. Anyone that's tried to unprove it has always failed. And it practically proves itself to be true in our lives in that whenever we listen to it, we see that it results in blessing or happiness, Lord where so many things in this world, they don't result in that for us. So we want to always go to your word first whenever we are wondering about things and have questions about things. And Lord, so we thank you for it. And we pray you be with us tonight as we look at it to answer these questions. Give us the wisdom to truly understand what it is that uh, you want us to know about these things. Um, because if it's something we should know, uh, it's in your word and it's there to bless us. So uh, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first question was, why can't I live my own life 
the way I want to and be a Christian. Okay, and I assigned that question to my wife, Sarah, so she is going to give you guys an answer. Okay, yes, so um, I divided this question up into three different parts. Uh, What is a Christian? We'll briefly just touch on what is free will and an invitation to choose wisely. So um, have you guys heard that saying, um, someone or actually, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It's easy to look at a huge variety of people who call themselves Christians and be confused about exactly what a Christian is. Sometimes people use the word Christian just to mean a moral person or a word to describe someone who goes to church and believes in God. But just because you say you believe in God, that does not make you a Christian. It is true that the devil believes in God. That is, he believes God exists. This is not the kind of faith we are called to have. The word Christian in today's society can be used very loosely. So what does a Christian believe? Well, one thing is um, a Christian believes that there is one God and he loves everybody. A Christian believes Jesus came to earth as a baby, lived a sinless life, died, on the cross and came to life again to offer forgiveness for our sins. A Christian recognizes sin separates us from God and we need a savior. And a Christian responds to God's offer of forgiveness by making a choice to stop living for themselves and allowing God to make them who he wants them to be. You will know if someone is really a follower of Christ by how they actually live. Matthew 7, 16 through 20 says, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or frigs, figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So back to the question, why can't I live my own life the way I want to and be a Christian? Well, because of free will, or there is free will, sorry. Uh, We do have that free will. And also when you look in the Bible, um, the Bible says that we do have free will and you will discover that we have the right and the ability to choose the direction we will go and what we will do. So why can't I live my own life the way I want to? 1 Corinthians 10, 23 says, uh, you say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I like how David Gusick said, the Corinthian Christians focused on their own rights and knowledge. They asked one question, what's the harm to me? Instead of only asking that question, they needed to also ask, what good can this be for me? This power to choose the way you want to live is not something that should be considered lightly because what comes along with the power to choose is the reality that there are consequences for your choice. Something that must be considered too is Jeremiah 17, nine. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can understand it? For me, this verse is humbling. It makes me question, do I really want to live my life the way I want want to, knowing that my heart can lead me astray? And so now I just wanna give you like, or talk about an invitation to choose wisely. I'd like you to consider an invitation that is offered to us. It is one where Jesus invites us to follow him. 
All throughout Israel, Jesus was urging people to repent and believe the gospel. Follow me was his message. So if one of my boys asked me, mom, why can't I live my own life the way I want to and be a Christian? I would respond with a question. Why would you want to live any other way that isn't a life of humility and one surrendered to Jesus Christ? My oldest son is a senior in high school and he is currently considering all his options for his future. I personally have some pretty great plans for Sam. I'd love to see him go to Ecola or Cape and Ray, maybe even York Bible School next year, but those are my plans. You wanna know what I've been instructing him to do? I tell him, don't live your life the way you want to. I tell him to pray. And then I go back in his room and I ask him, did you get your prayer journal out? I remind him to pray again. And then I remind him to continue seeking the Lord. Our family verse is Proverbs 16, nine. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. So Sam has a decision to make, an expensive decision to make. And ultimately, I want him to follow Jesus. You know why? Because I wholeheartedly believe Jeremiah 29, 11. At the beginning of, oh, I missed a page, you guys. <laughs> I knew something wasn't making sense. Okay, well, we're just gonna leave that out. Um, so Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. My challenge to whoever thinks their plans are better than what the Lord has for you would be to humble yourself. Remember that he is God and you are not. Then I would say, commit your ways to the Lord. Submit to his good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. A life following Christ isn't a life of loss. Instead, it is a life of abundance. It's an adventure. Amen. It's all right. Does anyone have any comments to add to that? You know, I, I would say just generally to answer that question, um, you know, because the, the thing is, it's why can't I live my own life the way I want and be a Christian? Well, to be a Christian, what that means is Christ follower. That's, that's where that word came. Actually, people would say it in the book of Acts. We see it used as a derogatory term to make fun of people that were Christians because they were followers of Christ. And this book defines what it looks like to be a Christian. So this is what a Christian is. You know, like it tells you to be what a Christ follower is to be like. And God's word tells us that when we are a Christian, when we do what God says, um, it leads to happiness. Like we, we all, we're all making choices in life to be happy. I mean, in some way or another, no, none of us are making choices to do things that harm us. We think we're making a choice to make ourselves happy. And what the Bible tells us is that your heart is actually deceitful. Like without God in your life, you actually don't know what is gonna make you happy. You don't know what's best for you. So that's where free will comes into the picture. You, you can absolutely live your life the way you want, but what God tells us is it won't be good. It'll actually end up You'll end up harming yourself and hurting others, and eventually that will lead to destruction if you go on long enough. But you can also live for Jesus. You can live with him in your life to help you, and that will, that's where you'll really experience the life you're looking for and the happiness you're looking for. 
And actually, I just want to end by reading this verse. It says in um, Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In a nutshell, that he's answering that question. He's basically saying, if you live your life for yourself, here's at the end of it, you're actually gonna see that it ends up in loss. But if you give your life to me and follow me, that's where you're really gonna find what you're looking for. Did you have anything to add? Um, that was <laughs> part of the page I missed. But yeah, I think you summed it up well. Amen. Cool. Uh, the next question is going to be for uh, Matt Bellingham. And that question was, I feel like the Bible contradicts itself in places. How am I supposed to understand it? All right. I did have one thing to add to that last one. Just just something that kind of popped into my head here. Um, you know, what did Jesus say? Why did he come? He came to give us life and that more abundantly. Right. And, and if you look around at the world, at everybody that is living life for themselves, it's not very attractive. Mm. You know, there's there's pain, there's death, sickness, um, broken homes. And not that some of those aren't aren't in Christian homes, too. But but when you follow the Lord and you walk in a in a in a way that glorifies him and um, Jesus didn't come to to crush your buzz right he, he mm-hmm. came to give you life and that more abundantly mm-hmm. and and you will have fullness of life joy peace happiness um when you walk according to to the bible and um what god has for you so just to throw that in there too um so does the bible contradict itself um i'm going to start with no but we'll talk about that a little bit so, um, in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, we'll start with uh, verse 14 here. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing those from who you learned, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? So, um, man wrote the Bible, but it is inspired by God, right? It was, it was God working through men into the pen on the paper, right? And, and God doesn't contradict himself. God is, is truth. God is love. God is uh, steadfast, never-changing never, never wavering, um, never out of control. Right. And so, um, if you believe that this Bible, that this book was inspired by God, then you don't have to doubt if it's true and you don't have to doubt if, if there's mistakes in it, cause there's not mistakes in it. Um, and, and it is absolutely 100% correct. So, uh, this book has 66 different books in it, right? And it was written over 1,300 years. So if you were to go back to the 1980s and have a conversation with somebody, do you think that conversation is going to sound just like it does today? 
like mm. all the words going to jive. Um, like the slang that you guys use is going to be totally different from the slang that they used back then. If you go to different parts of Mexico, right, they all speak Spanish, but there's totally different dialects and ways of communicating and culture, right? And so that's, when you read the Bible, you got to understand, like, these, these people were, were spaced way apart, and they're from different areas of, of the world, really. Um, and so the way that people communicate isn't going to be the same from book to book. And so, um, and so we're going to go over some of that. There was no, there was no direct question um, about like specific parts of the Bible that, that contradict itself. So I dug up a few, um, that I'm sorry, I'm a cluster in general, so if I might drop things, it'll be okay. We'll get through this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the, one of the areas, uh, where, where people get hung up on, uh, I got three, three spots here and we might go into four if I have time, um, is Genesis one and two. Right, so Genesis one is is the creation of the world, um, and they a lot of people will say that well, it it says it is finished, it's done, God rested, but then in Genesis two it starts all over again. Like what the heck's going on? Well, if you look at Genesis two, it's it's the it's going in details of what happened on the sixth day, right? And it is going in detail about how God created the Garden of Eden, and uh, put man in charge of it, and made woman, and all that. So um, that's that's one area of it, and, but it's not a contradiction at all. Um, I don't even, I don't even personally. I, I don't see contradictions in the Bible. Maybe at first glance they might be like oh, that doesn't really make sense. But once you dig into it, really things line up. And I'm not a smart guy. Trust me. I'm. You can ask my wife and this guy next to me here. Um, but I can read the Bible, right? I can do research. You guys, there's so many valuable tools um, available to you that you can use. Um, you got to be careful when you're using Google because I can write something on there and you can read it and take it as fact and, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but um, you need to make sure your, your sources are reputable and stuff when you're doing research. But um, So that's the first one that, that I found was Genesis 1 and 2. Um, another one here is uh, in the New Testament genealogies um, in Matthew and in Luke. Um, they go over um, genealogies from Jesus, right? And people, uh, people point out, well, if you compare those in the New Testament with the Old Testament genealogies, well, they're missing a bunch of names and stuff, right? And that's just, like, I think they're missing like, two or three names here and there. Um, but that doesn't mean, one, that doesn't mean the genealogies are bad, right? My father's name is, is Marty. My grandfather's name is Ted, right? And so, am I a descendant of Ted? Yes. Yes, I am. So, to say that I'm a descendant of Ted does not, that's not wrong, right? And just because it skips my father, it doesn't make it any less true, right? Um, and so, uh, but some, honestly, some of the things that, that uh, I was going over here on, in, in Matthew, so he's a Jewish man, right? And he's writing to a Jewish audience, so there are, are 14 generations between each group, and there are three groups, right? And so <clears throat> the numbering in this, in this section here is more significant to the author than, it, than making sure he includes every name, 
every name. So uh, what's, a, what's a multiple of 14? All right, seven, seven times two. So seven, the number seven in the Bible is the number of completion, right? And, and the fact that it's doubled is just kind of emphasizing that, that, that the work of the Lord is in, in the Bible, in the, in the creation with Jesus, right? It's complete. Um, and then um, there's three different sections there, right? And so that's speaking of the Holy Trinity. Um, and so, but if you look at all that, he goes all the way back to Abraham in here. Well, he's a Jewish man speaking to, or to, he's a Hebrew man speaking to Hebrews. And so, like, he would go back to Abraham in order to show the completion of God's promise, right? Which was uh, Genesis twelve three. So I'll turn there really quick. I just, I, I learned something here, so I, th- I thought it was pretty fascinating when I was digging into all this. So Genesis twelve three. I will bless you who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with, with contempt. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Who'd Christ died for? He died for the world, right? He died for the sins of the world. So all the people on earth are blessed through Jesus Christ. And so he was, he's using all this to, to go back and, and show the completion of God's promise that this is the Messiah, Right, and so, so the original audience that he was writing this to was were Hebrew people, were Jews, right? They're going to understand all that and and catch those things, whereas I I I won't. I don't catch those things because that's not my culture. That's not where I was brought up in, um, and so, so I thought that was really interesting. And then Luke, um, they're like, well, why does why does Matthew only bring it back to Abraham and, and Luke brings it all back to Adam? And he's like, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Things aren't the same. They both use different names in the, in the genealogies. And, and uh, again, the genealogies aren't bad just because they're missing a name or two. That doesn't make them wrong. Are we all descendants of Adam? Yes, right? There's a ton of generations between there. But the fact is, we're all generations from Adam. We're all descendants of Adam. So, um, so Luke uh, is, a, is a Gentile. He's a Gentile author, and he's speaking to a Gentile audience. So he's going to speak differently, right? And he brings the genealogy all the way back to Adam um, just to show that, like, Christ didn't just descend from Abraham, but from Adam, which we all descended from Adam. So Christ can, can relate to us all, and he died for us all. Not just not just the Jew, Jewish people, right? So, um, right. So another another section here is uh, faith versus works, and that's a pretty big one where people people still to this day like they get really caught up on all this. Um, you know, is it faith or is it works? Like, which is it? Are you saved by faith? Are you saved by works? And so, um, going to James uh, two twenty one or 20 and 21 here. So James 2, 21, 20 and 21 says, Foolish man, are you, will, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Right, you see that uh, faith was active together with his works and by works faith was, was perfected, right? And so, uh, so there's that scripture and then there's Romans, 
Romans 4, 1 through 3. Romans 4, 1 through 3. What can you say, uh, what can we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, pay is not considered a gift, but is something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who declares righteousness, the ungodly, or righteous, the ungodly, his faith is credited, to, credited for righteousness, right? And so it's like we got Romans saying that, that it's, it's, it's not works, but in then in James we're saying like, well, it's faith and works. Like what's going on? What is it? Well, you got to look at, again, you got to look at, the, at who they're writing to, right? You got the Romans that were, um, let me get on my notes here. So in James, he holds that works are necessary, right? While Paul is claiming that faith is all you need, right? James is writing to a group of people that, that had faith, but no works, right? There's no fruit. It's not even about the works. It's, there's no fruit in their life. And you know, we're not necessarily supposed to judge people, other, other people, but we're supposed to judge their fruit, right? Look at their people, look at their lives. Like, does that guy look like he's saved? Probably not, you know? Um, or vice versa. And so, um, so, but what he's saying is faith without works is dead, right? And so, and then Paul, he was writing to people struggling with legal demand of the Mosaic law, like performing works of ceremony, right, ceremonial righteousness, like sacrifices, keeping up the law, um, observing the Sabbath. Like those are the things that they were, like it's Jesus and the works, right? But, but we can see like in our lives that once you put your faith in Christ, the works come because God has created good works for you to walk in before the time, before time was created. Right. So, um, so when you put your faith in Christ, like it's just natural when you spend time with Jesus, spend time with other believers, spend time in your word and in prayer that those, those good works just overflow out of you naturally. And so what he's saying is, Yes, it's, it's, even James is saying, yes, you're saved by faith, but, but at the same time, there should be some fruit in your life. And if there's not fruit in your life, you should maybe question where you're at, right? If that makes sense. I kind of just end on that. Uh, actually, real, real quick, I'll just, just tap on this. Um, I know one of the things, too, is, is uh, you know, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord died on the cross, was raised from the dead, forgive your sins, you'll be saved, right? And then other parts of the Bible, we see where it says, well, you have to be saved and baptized. You have to, you have to believe and be baptized to be saved. Well, um, what I would say about that really quick is, is that what do we, we have an example of the sinner on the cross that was next to Jesus, right? It was, he confessed with his mouth, had faith, and Jesus said, today you'll see me, be with me in paradise, right? And so we have that example of, of the fact that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. But what I would, what I would suggest that the, that the author of that section is, is talking about is, is that baptism is, is supposed to just kind of go hand in hand with salvation, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's something that, that 
we're commanded to do once we get saved to proclaim to all the earth what has happened inside of you, right? We're not supposed to be ashamed of, of the gospel. We're not supposed to be ashamed of Christ. When you're baptized, you're proclaiming to everybody that this, is, this has happened in my life, right? And so if something doesn't make sense, how can we understand it, right? Because that's, like I said, I'm not a smart guy. Um, but I know, I do believe that the Bible is true and I believe that the answers to life is in here, right? And so um, in, in John 14, 26, John 14, 26, this is uh, Jesus, it's red letters, this is Jesus talking, all right? I've spoken th- these things to you while I remain in you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the, fa- the Father will send him in my name. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. He will teach you all things, right? So I firmly believe that if you are having a hard time understanding what you're reading in there, that you need to get on your knees, on your face, and ask Christ to reveal it to you. Um, pray that the Father will, will send the Holy Spirit and give you a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit um, and he will, he will reveal these things to you. Uh, that's a promise, you guys. That's not something that he just, Jesus was just muttering and mumbling. Like, he will send the counselor, the Holy Spirit, in his name, and he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Right? So you can, you can have faith that if you pray in sincerity to the God of, of the universe that you're having a hard time understanding his word, like he's going to show you. He's going to it might not be right now. It might not maybe it will be. He can do that, but um but if you do that with sincere heart, like he's going to answer that for you. Um but the bigger question that I I'd, I'd present to you um if you're seeing all these uh contradictions in the Bible, where's your heart at? Right? Maybe you don't want to understand it. Um not saying this is the case, but maybe you don't want to understand it. Maybe it goes against how you want to live. Maybe it goes against um, the culture that you're seeing, right? Maybe, maybe you're just like, I don't want to believe that because that means that I'm going to have to change some stuff, right? So just a thought. Um, but man, study the scriptures, right? Listening to teachings on scriptures that you don't understand. Read commentaries, Bible dictionaries. Um, like I said before, be careful on Google, but man, one of the best resources that I've found, it's just a free resource on the internet, is Blue Letter Bible. Like, she brought up, Dave, uh, Sarah brought up David Guzik. He's super good. Um, he's got a lot of great con- commentary and resources on there. And when you read your Bible, man, just pray first. Get on your face and pray, Lord, I want to read your Bible. I want to read your word. I want to understand it. I want it to get in my life and change me from the inside out. Um, and let God be God, and let you, the, his created being, be what that is, right? Be the, be the created being, and let him be God, and let him show you what's right in the word, right? That's all I got. So I just had one thing. Um, I think there's really real value in this verse. It's Matthew uh, 19, um, verse uh, 14. And... Um, so the context is uh, these uh, children are coming up to Jesus and um, 
Um, then the disciples kind of rebuke, rebuke the children. And Jesus, this is what Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure if you've been in church long enough, you've heard the uh, childlike faith. And um, I think it's just a lesson for us as we get older. We think we need to know it all and have it all together. And, um, but there's real value in just taking God's word at face value and not thinking it or no, um, saying that we have to understand every in and out of this verse to, to believe it. Because like Jesus is saying here, like we should have a childlike faith and being able to trust God's character and what he's proven on the cross and what he's done for us, um, dying and being raised from the dead, that um, we can take what his word says at face value and we don't have to question it. Um, so I think that's... Uh, so there's real value in that. And we, as believers, we're in humility called to do that. And um, to, again, take take God for his word. And absolutely, you should dig and want to understand more. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that, like Matt was saying, I think it's a good, um, you should at least have a heart check if you're trying to look for loopholes or you're trying to look for um, contradictions and you're not willing just to take God's, word at face value and trust him for what he says is true in his word yeah. like he said so because it's uh scriptures breathed out right like matt was saying so we, we can trust it we can't take it at face value and um it's a lamp onto our feet so amen yeah go ahead um i just want to build on what these two said not to take away but to add to it um because as a young person i had a lot of questions um and i didn't know how to study my bible or um, you know, look to God's word for those answers. And um, he's good to give us wisdom when we ask. And so I would encourage you to, in, in today's culture, um, a lot of people use terms that aren't accurate to their definition. There's a difference in a contradiction or a discrepancy. Me and Sarah both rode here together. I could say we arrived in a Honda. She could say that we arrived in a white vehicle, but we neither of us would be contradicting each mm. other. It would be some different perspectives there. Um, as Christians, you know, uh, people have been defending our faith for, for long before we came to be. And so most of the common things that you'll hear identified as a contradiction, it will be addressed in a good study Bible or in a commentary or by another pastor that you can trust um, or any of your leaders you can come to at any time. Uh, I'm sure anyone would be glad to take, take some time to answer those questions for you. So I would just encourage you to look at real definitions and then ask yourself, you know, what's the definition of a contradiction? You know, is this a discrepancy? And if it's a discrepancy, does it actually make it untrue? Um, and that was really helpful to me whenever I was young. Yeah. And just to, like, add on to that, like, that's what typically you find out. Like, if you actually dig into what supposedly is a conflict or discrepancy, you'll actually see that it's it's not a conflict. Um, you know, and just to give you some examples, like, in Ezekiel 1 and 10, there's these living creatures, like Ezekiel's this, given this vision of heaven. He sees these living creatures these called cherubim, like a type of angel just worshiping God. And he describes them as having four faces, like basically a face of an ox, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, and the face of man. Like basically there's four faces, however that looks. And then John in Revelation 4 see, has a vision of heaven and sees the same creatures. And he only describes them as having one face. And some people will say, well, there's a conflict. But it's like, is it a conflict? Because from his perspective, maybe he's only seeing one side of their face. The faces are the same. 
It's just he's only seeing one side, whereas Ezekiel was seeing all four sides. So it, it isn't a conflict. And, and so that's just where, like, if you dig into it and you see those things can exist together. Or, for instance, some people will say, well, if God loves everyone, why in the Old Testament does it say he hates sin or he hates people in their sin? Well, can't those things coexist? I mean, God can love you, which is actually what makes his love so amazing, and at the same time hate your sin because it's hurting you and destroying you. As a parent, I love my kids. I don't love their sin. So it's, it's even the greater, it's God. It doesn't contradict, it's just, it's who he is. And it's explaining these feelings he's having. And then um, the other thing I would point out is like, when you get into studying the Bible, you start learning there's different literary, literary styles it's written in. So like a lot of it's narrative, where it's just describing historical events. And then some of it's prescriptive, where God's actually talking and he's, he's saying things that are good or bad or wrong or right. And so like, for instance, some people will look at those and go like, these are contradictions, see, because here it says God, their, his intent for marriage is only between a man and woman. And then here it's talking about these guys that are married to all these wives. Well, that's a narrative text. Just because it's talking about these guys that married a bunch of wives, that doesn't mean God approved of it. Because where he's speaking to us prescriptively, he clearly says, no, that wasn't my intent. So again, these things that sometimes people call conflicts, they're not actually conflicts when you dig into it and you look into it. So, all right. Well, let's have um, Nikisha, since she got the mic, she can answer the next question. Her, pa- uh, her, her comment was, my pastor told me karma isn't biblical, but how is that different than the law of reaping and sowing, which is a biblical teaching? First off, I want to say this is a great question, and I think it's a really fair question. So I'm going to try, I need to offer some clarifying uh, statements on our terms, and I'm going to try to take you through a journey of what karma is, how do we usually hear it referenced, what did Jesus teach about it, and then what is the difference between the two. Um, so I'm sure we've all heard someone, um, you know, say the saying, what, what goes around comes around, um, you know, you get what you give, that sort of thing. Um, in a word, in a very short statement, um, karma teaches that if we engage in good behavior, good things will happen, and engaging in wicked behavior brings negativity. Um, the result of our behavior is unavoidable because we'll get what we deserve. But is karma consistent with biblical teaching? Some believe it is. I'm going to offer you a few of the scriptures that um, will be referenced for people that want to defend it as such. Um, so uh, Proverbs 22.8 states, whoever sows injustice will reach calamity. And in a similar vein, the Apostle Paul writes, um, Galatians 6.7, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Um, and we'll come back to that verse towards the end. Um, so when Jesus says this, it appears that he might be affirming um, in Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Um, It can seem pretty cut and dry. We'll inevitably experience the consequences of our action. Uh, But is the language of reaping and sowing really the same thing as karma? Um, Did Jesus teach a divine system of tit for tat? Um, I would say no. Um, First off, uh, karma condemns us. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of karma. And in fact, Jesus directly contradicts this teaching. Jesus came to seek and save, not mete out punishment for infractions. Mm-hmm. Um, John three seventeen. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Life in the kingdom of God is one of freedom and grace. A life rooted in karma, on the other hand, is one of fear and condemnation. 
um, the popular understanding of karma um, is often stripped from its authentic um, implication. We assume that karma speaks merely to those inevitable consequences that I just spoke about. Uh, but the truth is karma in its authentic form is an integral part of both um, Hindu and Buddhist spirituality. What's important in these spiritualities is the belief of reincarnation, uh, past lives, future lives. That's what makes karma so powerful. Karma doesn't have to be experienced in this life. It can be rendered you um, in the next. So karma teaches that the universe will render us good for good and bad for bad. Um, yet, because we're imperfect people, karma will always produce condemnation. Ultimately, our sins are never forgiven, they're just deferred. And this flies in the face of God's desire to forgive us. Psalm 130, verses three and four states, if you, Lord, kept a record of, of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. God keeps no record of sin, karma does. Mm. Whether karma comes by way of divine being or the universe, because to believe in karma, you don't necessarily have to believe in a divine being, the, role, the result's the same. Life will conspire to keep you knocked down in negative experiences until your moral balance begins to sway in the opposite way. Here is where we end up condemned at because we never really know where we are in that balance of good and bad and have I done enough and is my good going to outweigh the bad? Um, so what does Jesus teach? Um, it can be easy to believe that there's a tie between suffering and sin. Um, Jesus himself dealt with this in his day. And so in Exodus 34, 7, um, it declares, God does not leave the guilty unpunished, but punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents. This ties in really nicely to the conversation about understanding the Bible and the context that it's written in, because over time, that verse became twisted into the belief that all instances of infirmity or tragedy testify to the badness of that individual. Um, according to the wisdom then, anyone born blind, uh, like we see in John 9-2, or those crushed by a falling tower in Luke 13, obviously deserve such a fate. So I want to read to you um, there in Luke 13, that, that section of scripture. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Salaam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Um, so when questioned about the sinfulness of those who died under the tower, Jesus states very clearly that they were no worse than the very righteous people posing the question. For Jesus, it makes no sense to believe that tragedy befalls the sinful, for all have sinned and fall short the glory of God, as stated in Romans 3.23. This may not seem like good news, but it is. It's the best news. Christ offers us salvation through the act of repentance. And the call to repentance is not because God is angry and longing to smite us. Jesus calls us to repentance so that we may meet the God who longs to forgive us. God's response to sin is not to condemn and destroy, but to redeem and save. Karma speaks about eventually receiving the due punishment for our sin. Jesus, however, articulates God's desire to forgive. For there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus sets us free from all death-producing laws. Romans 8 verses one and two. Any belief or doctrine that suggests that you get what is coming to you is rendered powerless by the cross. Mm. So do we reap what we sow? 
Does the gospel mean that there are no consequences in life? Does Christ's loving disposition to us mean that we need not to worry about the ethical commands of the kingdom? Or as Paul put it, and those of you that have been in service, um, Romans 6, shall we sin, sin, shall we sin so that grace may abound? Surely not. The biblical language of reaping and sowing describes the natural consequences of one's choices and behaviors. The consequences are natural and reasonable. If you constantly ridicule and berate a friend, he or she will eventually not want to be a friend anymore. Mm. If you place a hand on a hot stove, you will be burned. We can't avoid such consequences. Their experience is the natural outflow of our lives. Reaping and sowing speaks about the direction of one's life and what one might experience as the natural consequences of that decision. Paul writes, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. The natural consequence of pursuing worldly pleasures will be worldly rewards and rewards that are ultimately elusive. Pursuing spiritual vitality, on the other hand, leads us into eternal rewards. Reaping what we sow is to simply arrive at the end of the road that we've chose to travel upon. So what is the difference between karma and the gospel? Karma attempts to explain life's randomness by providing an answer to what happens to us. Yet in doing so, it leaves no room for grace. In the end, you have no one to blame but yourself for whatever occurs in your life. Diagnosed with an illness? Your fault. Did a hurricane destroy your house? That's your fault too. There's no room for mercy or for transformation. There's no grace and there's no forgiveness. The gospel tells a different story. Jesus is not waiting to hurl disease at you, accidents, or tragedy. Jesus is not waiting for the day where he can finally smite you for all the mistakes and sins that you've committed. In fact, Jesus is directly opposed to this. On the cross, Jesus spoke words of love, not hate, salvation, not condemnation. He prayed a prayer of forgiveness over those who spat on him and ridiculed him, struck him and crucified him. That is how Jesus treats people, good, bad, or indifferent. The way of Jesus is not condemnation. It is the way of redemption, grace, and love. And Jesus promises eternal life to all those who believe in him, John three sixteen. Amen. Amen. That's good. I have nothing to add. <laughs> That's great. And, and, all right, so we're going to pass it to Connor. His question is, is uh, cheating or adultery the only grounds for divorce in the Bible? Uh, what about abuse? Uh, according to the Bible, if you divorce, can you remarry? Yeah, so this is a, a, a pretty tough question, and there's a lot of sensitivity involved with it and a lot of different circumstances, and it can uh, look a lot different in a lot of different cases. Um, so I want to say that right off the bat. And and uh, it, uh, you don't have to look very far to find a lot of different opinions on the subject, and people... Um, you find a lot of different verses pulled to justify um, divorce in certain cases, and um, we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, so, yeah, it's just a, it's just an issue, one of those issues that there's a lot of different opinions and is uh, um, a sensitive subject. But um, I want to go to first ask, what does uh, God say about marriage and divorce? So, if we flip to uh, Genesis Genesis two twenty four. Um, so right after, uh, God created Eve, um, here, if I can find it here, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Um, 
and then I want I'm gonna flip to Matthew um, nineteen nine really quick. So I'll be hopping around here um, a little bit here and there, but I'll try to give you time to keep up here. You'll probably beat me anyway. All right, Matthew nineteen nine. Um, so says, so this is uh, Jesus is uh, addressing the. Uh, actually, that's uh, Matthew. Yeah, he's addressing the Pharisees here, and they're asking him um, about about divorce, and they're pretty much getting at the point like, "Hey, can you divorce um, your wife for any reason?" And uh, this is Jesus' answer. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And then he'll actually go down, go on um, down a little bit farther. And uh, see, I'm all crossed on my, my verses already. But, uh, this actually might be Matthew 5.32, but it also says that uh, what God has joined together, let, let not man separate. And I bring those two verses up just to, to say that God's, um, God's plan for marriage is permanency till uh, death do you part. And it's, uh, it's construed today where it's actually probably the shocking, the percentages you see today of marriages that end in divorce and it's oh that's okay try on the next one that's really really the world's attitude towards it and what the enemy would try to trick you in in believing but um god's plan for marriage is permanency until till death does your part like um it's made for one man and one woman to become one flesh for for a lifetime and that that's god's intent behind it and that's his uh design for marriage and so what does he, and I kind of hit those verses, um, what does he say about divorce is, like, he gave it to us because of hardness of heart. He gave it to us because um, our, our uh, shortcomings in, in being able to hold up, um, hold up our end of the deal. And uh, he, there's, but he doesn't just give it to just like these Pharisees saying, he doesn't just give it for any reason. He gives, there's very specific cases where we have grounds to, for divorce. And um, I'll list them here in a second, but there's really really only three that I think you can hang your hat on. Um, in Matthew 2.16, which this would be, you if you flip to it, you're not going to see it because it's in the RSV translation, but it starts out with, and I, I said Matthew, but I meant Malachi 2.16. talks about uh, God hates... God hates divorce. It starts that verse, uh, verse out with saying God hates divorce. And um, I would, just like when it says God hates sin or God hates evil, um, we can't misconstrue that to say like God hates the sinner or God hates somebody who has made a mistake and maybe came out of divorce or whatever. But he hates divorce because of the, uh, the result of it. And what divorce does to uh, families and what it ultimately does to kids and the damage that it brings, um, that's why he hates it, because he hates the result and consequences for us. Just like anything else, God doesn't tell us to do something or not to do something just because he wants to make up a bunch of rules. He knows what's best for us, and he knows that's 
what's our own good. So um, I think it's really, really important to understand that God, he only gives these very specific cases because divorce has a, uh, has a very, very harsh effect on everybody involved. And even when there is grounds for divorce, I think you can make the strong case, just like in Matthew 19 where he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, that reconciliation and forgiveness is the goal. And, um, and there's some really, I'm not trying to diminish the hard things that people go through. And there might be some real um, scary and tough circumstances within a marriage because we live in a fallen world. But that's God's heart. And um, I would just want to uh, uh, go to Matthew 18, 21 through 22. And I just want to talk about this forgiveness um, a little bit more just because this would be so so key in a a situation, in, in the situation, in these circumstances. So it's Matthew 18, verse 21 and 22. If I can find it here, um, so this is the uh, this Peter asking Jesus question. He says, "Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times." And Jesus said, "I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times." Um, so God calls us to forgive, and may it may look different in in specific cases, but God ultimately calls us to forgive. And you guys know all this verse, but as he's being crucified, um, he looks, looks at everybody, looks at the people before him, says, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's, God, that's God's heart. And as believers and as Christians wanting to be changed and molded the image of himself, um, we, want to, we want to follow suit. So keeping that in mind, uh, so for the grounds, grounds for divorce given in, um, in the Bible, and we're going to go off, I was talking to a brother just to kind of clarify and make sure I was on the same page, and uh, just again, because it's a sensitive subject, and I don't want to say something that um, is, is not right, but um, he, because there's these verses, like you'll get Exodus 21.10, People used to uh, justify divorce in an abuse situation, or and there's also uh, there's a few of those Old Testament verses that may they may carry some merit, but um, they'll use to justify that. But now being under the new covenant, and those specific verses have to do with being betrothed, and um, it's sad to say, but women didn't have a lot of rights back then at 450 BC, and women being sought and sold as wives or sorry, sold and bought, um, and it addresses those specific circumstances. So I think we go to what, I think where we start with is go what Jesus says and um, under the new covenant and what, what we're living in now. So first grounds of divorce, we read it in Matthew 19, and if you also want to turn, it's also in Matthew 5, 532. It says, uh, Sexual immorality is a grounds for divorce. And when we're talking about this, it grounds for divorce and remarriage. You're no longer bound bound to that marriage. God recognizes that as a valid reason um, for divorce. And the Greek word is pornea, and it's a very general, 
general Greek word, so um, I don't have the time to specifically go into what that all could entail. Um, that would, again, be something that if you're ever in that situation, which I pray that you don't come across that, um, is something you prayerfully discern and you should have brothers and sisters that come alongside you to pray for you and bring it to the uh, church leadership and ask for wisdom and prayer. And so the next one, uh, this is given by Paul and it's 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna flip there, and it says, "But if a of, if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace." So I think this one's pretty common sense. In in if somebody abandons you or chooses, I don't I don't want to be with you and leaves. Um, then you're not you're no longer bound to that person in marriage, and again I would I uh, I think if you go up to uh, verse ten where it says um, actually I'm gonna go sorry I'm gonna go back to uh, twelve to the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is unbeliever and consents to live with him he should not divorce her if anyone has a husband who is unbeliever she consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. So again, hearts, God's heart is um, that divorce isn't isn't the answer, and that we should uh, we should honor the marriage in that in that situation. But if again, if somebody leaves, we can't we can't force them to stay. They have their free will. They have their choice. And uh, in that case, being not enslaved or not in bondage to that covenant anymore would be mean that your abandonment is a. Uh, valid grounds for divorce and remarriage. And then Roman, this one's pretty obvious. In um, Romans 7, seven, verse 2 and 3, I'll just flip that really quick, but it's death. And it says, uh, maybe I'm, yeah, I'm crossed, but I've done that twice, but that's okay. If you you, uh, Google it really quick, it'll tell you the right verse, but death is a valid reason Oh, that's why I'm in. I didn't get. I didn't flip to Romans. That'll do it. I'm in First Corinthians. That's funny. Um, so verse seven or chapter seven, verse two says, uh, "For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage." So again, that's our that's our third third grounds for divorce. And now we come into the issue that. Uh, when we're talking about abuse and rape and those those terrible things that can can go on in a marriage, and I can't give you a Bible verse that explicitly says that that's grounds for divorce. Um, it's absolutely grounds for separation, and if you're ever if you're ever in that situation, you should remove your yourself, and if there's kids involved, you should absolutely remove them from a situation that's putting them in danger, and. Um, because as a believer in your God's child and if you should, uh, he cares about you and I don't think he would want to want you to stay in a, uh, in a situation where you're putting yourself and your kids at risk because he cares and loves about you. Um, and I think 
again, when you're in that case or in that situation, it's something that should you shouldn't isolate yourself. And that would be, again, I haven't been in that personally, but I could see that very easily turning into isolating yourself and being like um, trying to handle it on your own or saying in, in, in pride saying that uh, that you're embarrassed to separate or you don't want to admit there's something going on in your marriage or there's a whole number of reasons why um, we have a tendency to, to try to keep stuff to ourselves and maybe just tough it out and, and uh, grit our teeth and get through it, which I would say um, you're, you're falling on the enemy's lies. That's not what we're called to do as believers. We're never called to do this walk alone. And, and especially in a case like that where there are so many different variables and, and um, things that are going on that you should uh, bring it to the attention of the church. And you should absolutely bring it to the attention of authorities for your protection and your family's protection. Um, Romans twelve five says we should weep with those who weep. And um, as brothers in Christ, or as brothers and sisters in Christ, I should absolutely come alongside somebody who's going through a situation like that and um, do do what we're called to do, do what we can, and pray for them for discernment. Because uh, again. It doesn't explicitly say it's grounds for divorce, but it's absolutely grounds for separation. And somebody told me this too: is like separate, separate, uh, separation also, in most cases, brings the intent of the heart out, and um, ultimately that'll solve solve a lot of issues. And that person that's guilty, that's not in the right heart's not in the right place for reconciliation, forgiveness and ultimately wanting to honor the Lord in, in their decisions and what, in what they're doing. Um, they'll just, they'll just go and move on and, and all there's not, not saying we should have the heart of waiting for grounds of divorce, but it eventually in most cases can turn, turn into that. Um, and maybe when I'm done here, uh, pastor Chris or Matt or these guys who have actually had to, counsel people going through this and stuff would have some um, better insight than I can give just but uh that that just seems separation would be solve solve a lot of issues um but again I don't think uh you there's a bible verse that says it's it's grounds for divorce absolutely grounds for separation you need to protect you and your family and also I want to just say that just because it's not doesn't say it's grounds for divorce. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care, and it doesn't mean there's justice in that situation. I want to flip to Malachi two sixteen. It says, uh, "It says that uh, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless." But I just want to focus on garments covered in violence because ultimately back in the day, in that time period, like symbolically they cover their wives with a garment of protection. And um, it was part of, the, part of the wedding ceremony back then. But, but uh, when a husband's mistreating their wife, uh, it has a negative effect on them too. It's not swept under the rug and it brings upon themselves a gar- garment of violence and in Matthew eighteen six, I want to flip there really quick too. 
it says that, uh, it says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones um, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in depths of the sea. And I'm just saying God doesn't deal with those things lightly. He cares cares for the innocent and ultimately stands up for the innocent. And I I know I'm going a little long and running out of time here. I'm not even going to flip to these because I don't have time. But uh, I think just an overall principle of God's protection in situations where um, they don't exactly line up with what we're talking about here, but I think the principle is the same. Uh, Abigail Nabal, um, Nabal needlessly puts his family in danger because he's a harsh dude, doesn't go into specifics what their family life looked like. But ultimately, Abigail steps out and, first of all, uh, petitions for Nabal's life and petitions for all the servants' life, and ultimately God honors honors that and protects her and protects her family, and um, and uh, ultimately God kills Nabal and 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 shows justice and and this is the famous one of Sarah and Abraham and not saying Abraham was a abusive husband by any means, but he did do something that was pretty messed up in in telling Sarah to pretend that he's his sister. So they don't kill him, and putting her in danger with a, with Pharaoh and another king, and um, and when somebody you trust sells you out like that and puts you uh, puts you in a situation like that again, I can't imagine what 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 uh, you're going through there. But God, Sarah, ultimately does what Abraham says amazingly, and God protects her in a situation like that. And uh, Romans eight twenty eight, I think you guys. Most of you guys know this. God works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And even in the toughest situations, toughest circumstances, God can use it for his glory and for your good ultimately to draw you closer. Um, quick testimony. And again, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to go too long here. Uh, and I wasn't even old enough to really understand the gravity of it, but come from a family where I have two two half-sisters and the, and the same dad. And, and I know they went through... Uh, went through a lot as kids and it was like any like any time divorce can be a super very sticky situation and and there's a lot of a lot of hurt that went on went on there and uh but now 20 I guess I didn't get super close to my sister till I was probably 20 or 21 or yeah 20 ish but now God has brought a super awesome relationship with all our siblings together and and brought restoration there and uh and use what was super tough circumstances to uh, to uh, bring bring us together as siblings, and then peop- and bring us together where we can have that super close relationship with rely on tre- rely on each other and uh, point each other back to Christ. And uh, so again, I just encourage you that God can turn does turn all those circumstances that look like there's no way. It's going to turn out in a favorable um, way. He can turn those for good. And they might not always turn for good. I don't want to say it, generalize that and say that it always happens. But thank, thank God that our citizenship is in heaven and we're living, we're living for, for when he comes back or calls us home. Amen. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Is that it? That's good. Well, yeah, and I'll just, I'll touch on a little bit. You did a really good job, Connor. But um, one, one of the verses, I just want to touch on this because I 
I've seen pastors say this, and I absolutely disagree because there's just no biblical reason to believe it would, it says this because it doesn't say this. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, where it says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In essence, what it's talking about there is it's talking about if, if you were married and you get saved, this is the context of what he's talking about, and your spouse is not saved, and they're willing to stay with you, then you should stay with them. But if they're going to leave you, then you're free. If they just want to leave you because you're a Christian and they don't want to be married anymore, you can let them go, you, and you can remarry if they want to divorce you or whatnot. That's the context of that. And, and some will look at that and say that that's the same as abuse. Like basically, if somebody uh, abuses you, then they are abandoning you, and you can divorce them. Now, I, I just want to separate this for a second and, and clearly say that's not what it's saying at all. I mean, that, it doesn't read that way. It doesn't say that. And, and in some sense, I, I believe the reason why God doesn't give abuse as a reason for a divorce is because that term's very subjective. And what I mean by that is that can mean whatever you want it to mean. I could sit there and say, my wife yelled at me the other day, so I'm divorcing her because that's abuse. And God knows that we don't like things that are hard and challenging. And if we had that type of liberty to just give up on a marriage, which can be challenging, we'd all take it. We'd take our way out. So he's very black and white in saying that, no, this is the only grounds. It's if there's unfaithfulness, like sexual immorality. And so I think that's really important to point out. And in some sense, in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees, that's what they're asking Jesus. They're saying, can a man divorce his wife for any reason he wants to? That's what they're saying. Like, they can say they're abused and divorced, and he's saying no, only if there's sexual immorality. Now, with that, I don't think God at all is asking somebody to stay in an abusive relationship and subject themselves to being harmed. So in, in instances where I've had to counsel people that are in a marriage and there's some sort of uh, you know, verbal or emotional or physical abuse, I've counseled them that, okay, well, we need to get you and your kids or whoever's at risk in a safe place first. That's the priority if they're being subjected to harm so that we can try to figure out how to handle this in, in a, uh, a safe way where you guys are safe while the abusive person is, is seeking help. Mm. And... Um, Typically, what will happen is either that person that's abusive, and Connor mentioned this, like basically their true colors will show, either they'll want to get help, which is what God would want them to do. If they were truly following God, they'd be humble and they'd realize they need help. They'd get help while they're not with their family anymore, so their family's not in danger. They would be seeking help until such point that it was determined that it was safe for them to be reunited. Or they just, in essence, show that they're not interested in what God says. And they, they just, in a sense, what happens is they either move on with being unfaithful to their wife while they're still married and, or husband or whatever, or they just divorce themselves unbiblically. And then that person's free, basically, because the other person left. So I would say we're really quick to go to that, that answer of divorce when it's not always necessary to go to it. Um, and, and God gives us this reason clearly 
on when it's acceptable and when it's not acceptable. So, I, I that's anyone else have anything to add to that? Just really quick. Yeah, go ahead. So um, I just just wanted to say a couple of things. It's it's always one hundred percent of the time God's will for you not to separate, not not to divorce, right? He gives us the concession to divorce because he he relates to us, right? He understands that that we're people and that some things that will just be really, really, really difficult, not impossible to get over, right? As, as in um, sexual immorality, like somebody cheating on a spouse. Um, but it is 100% of the time God's desire for you to stay married. Um, but like Connor pointed out, like there is, there is a, a point where it's like, okay, we need to separate. But the goal of separation should always be with the intent to reunite um, this is a, a little out of context, but I, it's a really good principle. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, it's uh, just talking about uh, how a, a husband doesn't have authority over his body, but his wife does, and a wife doesn't have authority over her body, but, 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 uh, he, but the husband does. It um, says, if, uh, Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And, and I realize that's a little bit out of context, um, but it's a, it's a really good principle in marriage is when you're having problems and it's like, hey, we, we got to stop here and get this figured out. Separate with the intent to pray. Seek the mm. Lord. The intent should always be to reconcile and come back together again, right? Um, and Connor clarified like when it's, when it's okay for that to to abandon ship, I feel like. So that's that's all I had to say. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, this is a little bit different from the question, but just something that I want to offer to um, you guys out here. Um, I came from a pretty bad home. Um, anything that you can think of, it was definitely a part of the regular on my and during my childhood. Um, and I can't help but wonder with a question like this, since none, I'm assuming none of you guys are married, uh, where it could be coming from. And so I just would like to direct you maybe in whatever circumstance to look at Matthew 5, um, specifically uh, verses 3 through 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Um, I would encourage you to pray for the adults in your life or pray for your circumstances. It can sometimes feel... Um, pretty out of control when you're young and maybe don't have the ability to step into circumstances that you want to, uh, God hears your prayers. And I just want to encourage you in that and encourage you in remembering that um, this world is broken and that's not God's heart. His character is everything opposite of abuse and rape and, and some of these circumstances that we're not exactly calling out, but that we all know that we're talking about here. So I just want to encourage you to pray, uh, pray for yourself, pray for the adults in your life, um, and come to your leaders, you know, if there's ever a circumstance that you're not safe in or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I'm going to try really quick to answer this last question. Um, it is, what does the Bible say about guardian angels? What is our relationship with them supposed to look like? Should we be communicating with them? All right. Well, first thing I want to do is I want to just define what God's word says angels are. That's probably the most important thing. So I'm going to read some verses. I'm going to read some parts of a passage in Hebrews 1. 
In Hebrews 1, the writer's directing this letter to uh, Jewish people that are Christians because Jewish people held angels in really high regard. And so some of them are holding angels up there with Jesus. And so he's kind of correcting them, saying angels are nowhere near Jesus, okay? And some of the things he points out in there is he says, uh, the writer, Hebrews, this is Hebrews 1, verse 6, says, when he brought his supreme son, that being Jesus, into the world, God said, let all the angels worship him. Regarding the angels, he says, he sends his angels like the winds, his servants like flames of fire. Going down a little bit in Hebrews 1, he says in verse 14, therefore angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. That would be us, those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He says in Psalm 148, one through five, the writer says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him from the skies, praise him all his angels, praise him all the armies of heavens, praise him sun and the moon, praise him all you twinkling stars, praise him skies above, praise him vapors high above the clouds. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord for he issued his command and they came into being. So that tells us angels are part of God's creation along with everything else. Uh, when John had a vision of heaven in Revelation 5.11, it says, then I looked again and I heard the voice of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, that's God's throne, and of the living beings and the elders. So from those texts alone, those parts of the Bible, we can know angels are not equal to Jesus or God. As such, they're not eternal beings they haven't always been and existed like God has. Nobody created God. He created everything. They were part of that creation. They're spiritual beings created by God, different than humans for the purpose of serving the Lord as he wills. And one of those ways he uses them is to take care of his people or take care of believers. And apparently there's a whole lot of angels because John saw thousands and millions, okay? So there's a whole lot. The Hebrew word used for angel in the Old Testament and the Greek word used in the New Testament simply means messenger. And we see them all throughout scripture sent to deliver God's messages to God's people on God's behalf. He sends them to give them a message. So regarding the question about what is our relationship with them supposed to look like or should we be communicating with them, the ins what I would point out is the instances of them making themselves or appearing to people are very rare. I mean, when you're looking at the lives of believers, there's very few instances where it talks about angels appearing to them. And they're always being sent by God uh, to care for his people um, in the major, or if, if they're being sent by God to care for his people as often as the Bible makes it sound, most of the time it's undetected or they're invisible because there's only a few times where you actually, they make themselves apparent where people can see them. So, um, and then the one thing I would point out as well is that their contact with humans always appears to be initiated by God who sends them. As I can't think of one unless you guys can, or I've never found an instance where a person initiated contact with an angel. It was always God sending them to speak to that person. 
Um, so at least knowingly, there are, there are instances where Hebrews 13, two tells us, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. So that makes it sound like there's angels amongst us sometimes that might look or be able to take the form of a human that we wouldn't even know that they were an angel. Um, other times, they must appear quite grand because when we see them appear to pe people in scripture, they almost are afraid because the angel has to say, do not be afraid, or they fall down to worship them. One says such instances in Revelation 22, eight through nine, where John sees an angel and he falls down to worship the angel at his feet, but the angel says, no, don't worship me. I'm a servant of God, just like you and your brothers, the prophets. So they're not to be worshiped like God. We also know angels have supernatural God-given powers that we don't. Um, we're given one such instance in Acts 12, six through nine, where Peter's in prison and it says, uh, he's, he's like basically in between two guards and he's got chains on. And it says, suddenly there's a bright light in the cell and the angel of the Lord stood before Peter and the angel struck him on the side to awake, waken him and said, get quick, get up. And his chains fall off. And then the angel leads him out of that prison by guards and nobody bothers him. So they have supernatural uh, powers. Uh, Revelation 14, six also tells us they're able to fly, though I would say there's only two distinct angels that are mentioned as having wings. We think you need wings to fly, but maybe not for all of them. But there are two, the cherubim and the seraphim that are said to have wings. They also have been given immortality or they can't die. Uh, just like us through our faith in Jesus, basically we have eternal life. Uh, they've been given immortality. Uh, Luke 20, 36 is talking about believers and it says, and they will never die again. That's us. In this respect, they will be like angels or angels are like us in that they don't die. Um, and then now, here, I want to get back to the question. The idea of a personal guardian angel comes from a specific verse where Jesus is speaking in Matthew 18.10. And it says, beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones. Those are believers he's talking about. It says, beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones or any of these believers. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly father. So some read that as that God must have assigned each of us an angel to take care of us. And I would say that that would be making a presumption because it doesn't clearly say that. One thing we can know though is that there is a multitude of angels at God's disposal to send to care for us whenever he wants to based off of the things we do see in scripture. And I would also say that you've been given an even better person to have a relationship and communicate with other than a guardian angel, all right? Um, who's also there to help you. Jesus telling us in John 14, 16 through 17, and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. So through your faith in Jesus, 
God's spirit, who is part of the Trinity, is inside of you. And that gives you access to God himself whenever you want. So let me just give you a little application that maybe could help you think about this in the proper way. If I worked for a company and my dad was the president of that company, CEO, nobody higher up in that company, and I needed to get something done that I knew he could help me with more so than anyone else, do you think it would be worth my time to waste it with mid-management or to go straight to the top to get what I needed done to be done? What do you think? Call the big guy, right? If because of my special relationship with the CEO, because he was my dad, that I had access to him, shouldn't I go to him? Wouldn't I go to him if I knew he could help me quicker and better than anyone else, right? That's your relationship with God. So you don't need to talk to angels. You, when you can talk to the big man himself, the one that created them with you and everyone else, that's who you have a relationship with and you can talk to and trust that he will hear you and help you with it, whatever you're dealing with. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, that's all we have, and we're actually just short in time. We got to get you guys back driving in the shuttle. So uh, I hope we answered your questions. If you didn't, you know what? You get to go home and ask your parents, and they can answer. And if they can't answer, you can kind of talk to us at church or whatnot, or talk to Marcus. He'll give you the, the things you're looking for. So Thank you guys for listening to us tonight. God bless you.